0: Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Bookie Ade. Bookie is a sickle cell advocate. She's also a filmmaker and a photographer. You may recognize her as Queen Photos on Instagram. And she's going to talk to us today about life with sickle cell anemia. So, Bookie, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Oh, so such an honor, such an honor. We've been in touch for a while, and it's nice that we've finally been able to make it happen. So... You may
1: know, I love
0: to start at the beginning of the beginning. I would love for you to tell us when and how you were first diagnosed, when you first realized you were sick, and what steps you've taken to control your health since then.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, as you know, sickle cell is a genetic blood disorder, so you're born with it. But my mom told me that my first crisis, I think, was when I was two. I had an infection, um, and I still have a scar from it. On my right arm, Um, I was born in Nigeria, so, you know, I don't know what the state of medical care was in the 90s in Nigeria, but that's how they treated the infection. Um, And then we came to the States, and I think my first big crisis I remember was, um, I was like a preteen, maybe, I was 12 or 13, and I was staying with my aunt for the weekend because my parents had traveled. And they were so shook, like, they did not know what to do. Um, Ended up going in the ambulance for the first time. So that was the first time I, like, really remember having a crisis. Um, And And realizing how
0: serious it was, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 Wow. So were you diagnosed then when you were born, when you were really little, before this first infection, when you were in Nigeria?
1: Yeah. I'm going to guess that the infection is when my parents knew.
0: Interesting. So neither of them knew that they were carriers of the sickle cell trait,
1: maybe? Well, I think my oldest brother has sickle cell as well, so they found out then.
0: Oh, interesting. Wow. So you guys both have it. So how have you been able to stay healthy and maintain control over your health? I mean, since being diagnosed and going through these crises, and for those who are tuning in, crises are generally chronic pain, um, and really serious body pain. Um, and often people end up in the hospital with crises. So how have you been able to maintain your health so that you prevent crises from happening and you can stay well and active?
1: Honestly, it's God for real, because I know sometimes as much as I try to like prevent it, sometimes I still live recklessly, AKA, I think I'm a normal person without any.
0: Oh my God. I've still been there. I feel you so hard that was me last week
1: And <laughs> <laughs> got really be looking out but also like you just have to know your triggers so like cold I know is a trigger exercise I know can be a trigger um, so for the longest I wasn't exercising but then I started again and I just had to like learn what my limits are and how much I can so go true. so true
0: yeah. Because exercise and movement, it's like, it's so important. But then when it's a trigger, I'm with you on that too. Cause I get really fatigued really easily. Yes, yeah. And it's like, well, how am I supposed to even be moving my body when moving my body is the thing that triggers me? I know it's, it's a <laughs> lot, <laughs> but it sounds like you figured out the balance for yourself.
1: Yeah. I think mm-hmm. now that I'm getting older, the biggest thing I need to figure out how to control is stress. I think oh my gosh! That's what's caused my last couple of um crises, and the thing is like sometimes your body is stressed, but your brain doesn't even know it. Oh my god you're speaking and it takes a while. you're to speaking to that. my
0: heart right now <laughs> it's so i mean that is so absolutely true um and I yeah. think stress is one of the it's so insidious too because our lifestyle is organized around constant stress right that like being a person living in the U.S. and the work-life balance, which we'll get into as well, you know, like we're expected to be overachieving and be
1: overwhelmed all the time. Yeah, pretty much. And it's just, I'm trying to get ahead of it, basically try to see what is causing the stress because you can't really mitigate all of the stresses in your life. but. We can try, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What does that look like for you in terms of trying to get to the root cause and manage that? Is it like meditation
1: and more awareness? Yeah, um, I don't know. I've I've just started realizing that, so I haven't even gotten that far. But oh, premature question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you got if you got the tips and the
0: gems, let uh, me know. Meditation. I, I hate to be that person who's like, "Have you tried yoga?" But like, <laughs> meditation <laughs> really because- helps.
1: At the start of this year, I was like, yeah, because last year I was like really big into like lifting, you know, all of oh, that. Oh man, but that's this big, year, yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to do yoga. And then mm-hmm. COVID happened and all the yoga studios closed and I just haven't done any at home.
0: So it sounds like, you know, you've had crises growing up, but it really is at this point about mitigating stress so that you can prevent future crises and also staying yeah. well in the interim so that you're not running yourself into the ground, Right. Right. So yeah. in terms of, I mean, I know you mentioned you had this crisis as a child with the infection and you also had the experience, um, when you were with your aunt, um, as, as a preteen, did you find that you needed to develop sort of an advocacy relationship either with yourself or with anyone else in your life along this experience journey to diagnosis and treatment and, And has that impacted your relationship with either self or an outside advocate?
1: I think that started like once I moved out of pediatrics, I started advocating more for myself Um, just because adult care, oh man, I was not ready.
0: Well, I'm glad you bring that up because this transition from pediatric to adult care, it's I think one of the common themes that comes up in these discussions is that it's a really shocking one because you go from like all the care to like you having to do
1: all the work. Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: And no one teaches you how to do that. You have to sort of become that advocate. Yeah. By hell or high water, right?
1: Right. Right. And it's it's taken me some um a couple of tries. I remember so I went to a couple hospitals that basically don't know how to treat sickle cell in the ER like
0: that's I'm like shaking my head like you got to be kidding me right now. But
1: I didn't come here just to keep taking the same medicine I already had at home. Yeah. And so I remember I was at a different hospital, which by the way is the hospital that my hematologist works at. And they were like, oh, I see you bouncing around hospitals. Why is that? And I'm like. Oh, no. Did they think that you were seeking pain medication? That's always the case. That is always the case. And
0: do you think this is because you're a black woman? And they were like, oh, she's suspicious. Like, do you think it was some inherent racism? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get into that too, but this is an interesting one because sickle cell, I mean, the probably largest percentage of the population affected by sickle cell is people from Afro-Caribbean backgrounds. Yeah. So there is some racism that comes along with the treatment of this illness as well. So in terms of becoming your own advocate, what's that journey been like for you? Because I know that you're settling into this role as a sickle cell advocate for others, right? but going from being a child and being taken care of to having to do the advocacy legwork yourself, what has that looked like in terms of your self-worth and how you see yourself? Wow. That's a deep
1: question. I I don't joke around. (laughs) (laughs) We get straight into it. (laughs) Um, I think it's just me questioning if I'm strong enough, honestly, to do the work. It's like, I feel like recently I'm just tired, like between actually being sick and advocating for myself, I'm just tired. Like No one person should have to do all of this work. Like I would just like to go in the hospital and be taken care of without having to tell the doctor what to do, without having to fight the doctor when they don't want to listen to me. Um, So it's just about, for me, it's just about, um, I guess, stamina and learning and trying to figure out the best way to communicate these things without it feeling like an additional burden.
0: Well, that's what I was going to say. Talk about stress, right?
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: It it is sort of a vicious cycle, the stress cycle, I think. Um, And this is also personal. It's hard not for it all to be like a personal stressor, right? You know, this is your health. So I touched on this idea of, you know, balancing work and life and, how stress also affects our day-to-day, right? Um, And I'm wondering what a typical day looks like for you. How are you maneuvering around the expectations of the world and your life as you manage potential crises and try to keep triggers at bay?
1: So pre-COVID, specifically last year, I'm going to say that was non-existent. And I literally like ran myself... To the dirt, like I produced my first film last year. um, So that's a huge, a huge (laughs) accomplishment. Congratulations! And I also got snatched (laughs) last year. um, What does that mean? Like fitness-wise, like I was losing weight and I almost had abs. I was really close to having abs. Wow. Okay, I'm impressed. But then my health went to shit, um, literally, like, starting from July. So my film screening was in August. And then, like, September, I was in the hospital twice. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like
0: pursuing your passions has made you sick.
1: Kind of. Because, I mean, I still have a day job. I'm a technologist. Mm. I'm a technology consultant. Um, And so I would come home and work a little bit on my film and then go to the gym and then sleep and repeat or if I didn't do gym then I would just do the film or if I didn't do the film I would just do the gym and I didn't I felt like I had it managed I didn't feel super stressed um but yeah I don't know I don't I honestly don't know if the two are related because I feel like I've always been like go, 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 like even in college, I was in a bunch of like activities, extracurriculars and like had a job and I didn't, I only got, I was only in the hospital one time in college in four years, which was like- That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Like prior to last year, I hadn't been hospitalized for like four or five years. Wow. Yeah. So So, last year was just-
0: Things got like a little out of control, I guess, repeating that cycle, not giving yourself downtime. And it's that tough thing. It's what you mentioned before about like, sometimes your body knows before your brain does, or before your heart does, like, you know, that your body will shut down when it needs rest. And it never happens at a convenient time, does it? Ever. (laughs) Never, (laughs) Never, ever. What about now? Like with COVID, has that in a sense reduced some of your everyday stressors because everything's a little more contained now?
1: Um, yes and no. Yes, in general, because I have less to do, but no, because I'm like mentally still putting a lot of pressure on myself. Like I'm trying to get over like the guilt of like, I haven't worked out all year pretty much ever since I haven't been able to go to yoga. Um And then there's like, I want to work on like my next film and stuff, but it's just like, I haven't guess I haven't been motivated, but also I want to give myself time to just rest and not do anything. So, and that, well, that ever looming
0: question of is COVID the time that we're all supposed to be resting,
1: right? Right. Right. Cause I remember at the beginning, everyone was like, oh, you should come out of this with your film done and your book written and <laughs> you should come out of it, having lost 50 pounds. And, you know, and I'm just like, I'll just be over Um, here
0: taking a nap.
1: (laughs) Okay. Honestly, I actually took this week off because I was in the hospital two weeks ago. I should have taken the last week off, but I was trying to push through and see. And then I was also feeling guilty about taking the time off because I had just taken a week off from being in the hospital.
0: Well, (laughs) I I mean, talk to me a little bit about that guilt too, because like, do you think that's also a particularly female thing? Like if you were a dude being like, I need the week off, like- do you think that you would feel less guilt? Is that a guilt that like you put on yourself because you've been taught to
1: push through things? I don't know. I don't think that's a female thing. I think that might just be a chronic illness or a sickle mm-hmm. cell thing. Chronic illness, I, mean, I think it's a chronic illness. <laughs> Not just sickle cell, trust me. Because <laughs> I was out in March, I was out in April. And then June, I didn't take any time off after those hospitalizations. So I just went right back to work. So, this time, because I had been feeling like I needed time off, but I was saving my PTO for my brother's wedding. Um, mm. So, like but congratulations. Now I'm like, <laughs> yeah. But now I'm like, all right, I need to take this time off for my mental health and just like do nothing or think about myself and not have to like wake up and log in. You know, like even yeah. though we are at home, it's still taking up mental space. And that's what I need to clear up.
0: Yeah. I totally, totally understand where you're coming from. So you mentioned that you've been in these situations where you've like gone to the ER and the doctors haven't even known how to treat sickle cell, which is appalling to me. Um, Can you talk us through any situations that you have may have been in where you've been forced to justify your illness to other people who didn't understand it because they couldn't see it because it wasn't like you in a wheelchair necessarily, but like because it's invisible that you had to validate the existence of your diagnosis to people who just didn't didn't get
1: it? Um, It's crazy because I feel like it's easier in the outside world than it is in the hospital. (laughs) I actually Mm. had a doctor. I was in the hospital. uh, So I was asking, I was on a PCA and basically it's when you push a button to get the pain medicine. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this PCA isn't doing anything for me. Can you increase the dose? And she was like, no, because... I don't want you to overdose and, um, it seems to be working because you fell asleep.
0: Oh, cause you, like, you, yeah, you can't sleep okay. when you're in pain. Like, of course you can sleep. You're so used to chronic pain. Wow. I
1: was like, yeah, I literally told her, I was like, yeah, because pain medicine is the only reason why people fall asleep. hmm Yeah. Good for you. Anything. Yeah. Like, what kind, like, I was so shocked that she actually said that, like, seriously.
0: Well, I, about I wonder it. about that. Cause this is one of those things like with sickle cell, the crises cause chronic pain. And so you're going into the hospital and requiring pain medication. So is this also yeah. something where you're being judged by people who presume that you're a pain medication seeker and that you're an addict, but it also sounds like, you know, you've largely not been taken seriously when you tell people you're in pain. Like that's sort of the general experience is either that people don't even know what sickle cell is. They don't know how to treat it even in the hospital where your hematologist works or they presume you're an addict or make some kind of judgment about you because of the way you present. Yeah.
1: I I I mean, go ahead. I think based on the male experiences I've heard, maybe it's a little better being a female. I think just in general said, my experience has been people don't know how to treat sickle cell, and that they don't believe I'm in pain. Obviously, mm. because I know how to manage it. But even when I go in like kicking and screaming, then they think I'm being dramatic and still mm. don't quickly. Yeah. So I don't it's know. interesting
0: because I've had a man on the show with sickle cell who said that his mother's advice was to go into, when he went into the ER was to be crying because if he went in kicking and screaming, people would take his pain more seriously. Whereas when you're a woman kicking and screaming, you're dramatic. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's dig a little more into this concept of prejudice in the healthcare system, particularly as it regards self-identity or the way that you present, right? You're a woman of color. Can you see these circumstances being vastly different if you presented otherwise, if you were a white woman asking for pain medication, if you were a man, I mean, aside from this, this male female that we just talked about, like what, how, what role has race also played in your experiences?
1: Honestly, I think, I think my experience might actually be worse if I was male, just because we know how America treats black men. I mean, obviously we know America also treats a black woman, Yeah. I
0: mean, the the healthcare system kills black women and the cops kill black men. That's pretty much what we know. Right. 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 So you've literally had that experience in the system where you've been brushed aside
1: and not taken seriously. Yeah. I waited in the ER for five hours before just to be given not even the medicine that I need. Wow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, would you also say that racial and gender inequality in the healthcare system is a public health crisis? Yeah. 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 100%. And and a lot of your experience has to do with the fact that like sickle cell anemia, a disease that largely affects Afro-Caribbean communities and other communities of color, this is one that some of these ER doctors aren't even educated in. And then when they are educated, they're not taking it seriously. Like, it sounds like, have you ever had a positive experience in an ER? It sounds like it's been pretty tough the whole
1: way through. Um, I do appreciate, there's been like one or two doctors who ask like, oh, what do you normally do? And then they actually listen and do that. Um, I've experienced where they wanted to, but their procedures don't allow them to. Like a lot of ERs only give morphine and they don't give like anything stronger, um, so it's like, you know, at that point, it's above them, and it's a systematic thing, obviously. Um, yeah, which well, I understand. Leads to with systematic the whole oppression, crisis. Right, right. Which,
0: but then it's also related to racial oppression in the healthcare system too. If you're not going to yeah. provide solutions for people who need something stronger than morphine, legitimately. Yeah, absolutely.
1: As soon as I go into an ER where they say we can only give you morphine, I already know that I'm going to be admitted because that's not really gonna do anything for mm. me.
0: So are you sort of picking and choosing your hospital too? Like if you end up in an ambulance, you're going, don't send me here, send me here?
1: Yeah, mm. yeah. And I mean, the hospital, I just transferred care to um, Hopkins. So anyone mm-hmm. in this area knows, um, but they are like the best at sickle cell in this area, adult sickle cell, let me say. Mm. Um, and so that's been dramatically different, like mm. worlds apart. Yeah, my hematologist is a black woman. And the first time we spoke, I almost cried because she just she just knew she just understood like I didn't have to explain anything.
0: I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up. Because I think one of the things that you and I also shared with each other a couple weeks ago was about the app health and her hue,
1: right?
0: Yeah, where you can be matched with a healthcare provider who literally looks like you so understands your experience. Yes. Yes. And it sounds like you sort of were able to do that.
1: Yes. My primary care now is also a black woman. So hoping that starts to get better. Yeah. Um, but that was after years of me just kind of like blowing in the wind with adult care and like going with the recommendations of like other people that I knew. And I knew I should have changed hematologist and primary cares a long time ago, but I don't know. It just didn't seem like that big of an issue until it became a big issue.
0: Well, that's our unwillingness to make ourselves a priority and make our health a priority when our society says, keep going, keep going.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's like, oh, I have other things I need to do. Like, I remember last fall, I was so tired. I felt like I was in and out of the hospital and out of the clinic. And I was like, I did not want to make another appointment. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Well, there are services that exist to do that for us, because it can be such a full-time job, right? Like, it's exhausting enough to have a chronic illness, let alone be trying to live a full life.
1: A full life. Yeah. 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 And the Black
0: practitioners who you have now, these Black female practitioners, was that by design? Were you specifically going, let me find a Black female doctor who's going to understand my experience more deeply, or did it just happen
1: and it was a relief? Honestly, I didn't think I was ever going to find a black female hematologist. So that happened by happenstance. But the primary care was semi-intentional.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's so wonderful that like of all the places in the world, your black female hematologist is at Hopkins. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So um, let's talk about advocacy work. Can you talk to us about your advocacy work and and what that looks like and how it, it fits into your life?
1: Yeah, so my brother actually started a website called Sickle, S I K C E L L. Um, two thousand eight. It's been a while now, uh, and, and so I just help him be like the community manager for that, like manage the discussions and things that go on there. And it's basically just a social network for people with sickle cell and also caretakers um and additionally i as a photographer have started a project called the warrior series where i've been photographing uh sickle cell warriors as we call ourselves um basically looking good and looking all sad and um because in one of the times i was in the hospital i was looking for documentaries on sickle cell and everything i saw was just like oh people with sickle cell don't live past 30 or like they can't have kids or like all these other things that were just like really old and outdated and sad and I just wanted to create a different narrative so um if you're in the DMV and you have sickle cell you want a free photo shoot
0: Hit me up. <laughs> I love that. well, I, we'll get when we get to the end of the interview, we'll also share where people can find you and how they can get in touch. but I mean, it's so amazing because this has also overlapped with current events um, and a lot of the Black Lives Matter marches that you've been going oh, on yeah. too and Juneteenth and um, it's been beautiful to see you know these aspects of who you are come into play in your photography work um, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I know it's probably very exhausting right now and going to these marches is hard too when you're chronically ill, right?
1: Yes. I honestly felt reckless going because I was like, uh, I don't really have an immune system right now. I know, and COVID, <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but the good I news just, is
0: the studies have shown that the COVID spreads that have been happening have not been related to the marches. So that's- I know. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> <Spot> <laughs> <twist>. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, You were doing the right
1: thing. Yeah, but I went out there with my mask and everything and I just thought it was important because I knew no one was going to be photographing the Black Disabled Lives Matter March. Um, So I felt that was important to go to. And then the Juneteenth, um, you know, living in D.C., I just felt like that was also important to capture. Um, I hadn't really gone and done street photography since like, the Women's March in Trump's inauguration. And that was a while ago. So
0: 2017,
1: that was yeah. Fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was a fun time. <laughs> a fun time <laughs> overshadowed by a horrible time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just amazing because what you're doing is creating visibility, right? Like this is all about the invisible. Um, this whole show is based on the invisible. And what you're doing in terms of advocacy work is addressing directly this idea of visibility um, and showing all the aspects that make us human, um, and that make the black community so vibrant too, especially with the recent marches. So that's been really beautiful to watch. And I encourage everyone to go over to Buki's, uh, Instagram and check it out. Um, so let's, let's also talk a little bit about the healthcare system. I mean, we've seen it really not work for you in a lot of ways, but it's getting better overall. In what way are you seeing the healthcare system maybe work? You don't have to say that there's anything that works if you don't think there is. Um, and in what ways are you seeing it fall short and requiring improvement?
1: Um, I think it works when you have doctors that care. And um, yeah, doctors that care. Like, it makes all the difference. It really does. It really does.
0: But it sounds like it's interesting, like your experience overall has also been that in the wider world of healthcare, you know, not being taken seriously and not having practitioners who listen, but at Hopkins, it's been a totally different experience. It's been a lot more comprehensive. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to sing the praises of Hopkins too much. I know because you you never, (laughs) yeah, everyone's going to
0: run into roadblocks. Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) All right. And we know they have a problematic past, but you know.
0: Talk to us about that. Let's, for those who are listening and who are like, what does she mean? What is, (laughs) what is the problematic past at Hopkins?
1: I mean, just the way they've treated black people. I mean, from Henrietta Lacks to just the general, like, disregard Mm, for.
0: Medical racism.
1: Yeah. Medical racism. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, And for those who don't know what Henrietta, who Henrietta Lacks is, there's a film, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, that's available out there. Um, And I mean, this kind of the idea that Black people are just bodies and not human, right? Right. That's what that is all about. It's about testing on Black people, not telling them, um, using their bodies, basically. Yeah, And it it stems from a tradition of slavery.
1: Right, right. It's funny because I was talking to my roommate about how Hopkins Hematology is so good. And she basically alluded to, like, the fact that, well, like, yeah, if you've had years to, like, do whatever to Black people, then, of course, your research is going to be extensive. Wow.
0: So, wow. Like, but also rarely acknowledging Black people in the research as well, right? I mean, so right. little research is done on Black subjects. Um, you know, little, I mean, it's, it's already... Mostly male subjects, let alone the, the male female thing. But right. then race is so rarely considered um, in research, and we're trying to create change around that. But absolutely, you know, um, we don't know enough. But the research that has been done has been manipulative. It hasn't been ethical, right? So I want to know what would you say if someone were like, I I think I have a chronic illness, or maybe they're diagnosed with sickle cell. What would your top three tips be for someone who is living? this Spoonie life, living with invisible illness, what would you recommend to people who are in the same boat?
1: Um, The first thing that comes to mind is give yourself more grace. Oh man, that that goes a long way. Like just allow yourself to be like you're doing the best you can. I know it sounds so cliche and corny, but you really are. Because at the end of the day, like your health is more important um, because you can't do any of the other stuff you want to do if your body isn't letting you. And then the other thing that Jamisha from You Look Okay to Me actually told me was that you basically have to re-envision what your life looks like. Um, that's something I've been working through. Um, I don't think I fully accepted. Like, I still want to live the life that I had planned and imagined for myself. Um, An able-bodied
0: life, right? One where there's no roadblocks.
1: Right. And that's not saying that you won't still live a full life, but a full life might just look different for you. Like maybe you won't go to the gym four times a week anymore. Maybe you'll just go once or twice a week, you know, as long as you're still making an effort and getting out there.
0: Um, Yeah, knowing that that's enough.
1: Right. Mm. Right. Um, And the third thing would be, find good specialists, <laughs> people who care about you and will listen to you. Cause that, that goes a long way, man. That goes so far. Like, like I was telling you before my first rheumatologist who, when he told me about the diagnosis, didn't he, I was like, okay, can you tell me about it? And he was just like, he literally told me to go on WebMD. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was so in shock. I didn't even, I, I couldn't even respond because I was like, wait, why am I paying you? If, yeah, <laughs> if I can go on Google. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So mm, Yeah. But, I, I think that's great advice. Yeah. Find a specialist who really listens to you and believes
1: you. Yeah. Mm. Even if that means you have to go to 10 different people, it'll be worth it.
0: Yeah. So true. What about, this is my favorite top three list, top three things that give you unbridled joy. So obviously you've had to make lifestyle adjustments to work around potential triggers to keep your body well. Um, But what are three things in your life that you will not give up no matter what? So these can be just things that you turn to for joy, guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities when you're in a crisis. But what are those things that you cling to to keep a smile on your face?
1: Um, I've recently started a post-hospital ritual of getting a manicure and pedicure. I love once, that. And she's got the manicure right now. <laughs> once again, I felt a little reckless going to the nail salon during COVID, but I just, I just had to, I really just had to. Um, you treated yourself. Yeah, I deserve
0: mm. it. <laughs> I, well, that's the thing. It's that idea of like, I deserve this. It makes me feel beautiful. It makes me feel complete. And that's really important and
1: you need to prioritize it. Yeah. Mm.
0: All right. What else?
1: Um, I will say I've recently started understanding the art of a bath, like a proper bath with bubbles. Oh yes.
0: Oh yes, <laughs> and some candles. Don't forget that your candles yes, there. Yes. <laughs> yes. With a nice little book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so really embracing relaxation from home.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah I love that.
1: And the third thing would be music. Oh man, music gets me through like when I'm in the ER, when I'm in the hospital, I spent the whole week in the ER by my, I mean, in the hospital by myself because they're not letting people in. because
0: Yeah, of, COVID. of course. That's yeah. really hard. Yeah. So it's like hard enough to be in the hospital, but when there's really no one around and you right. don't even have like social interactions to keep things light for yourself.
1: Exactly. Mm,
0: yeah. Music's really important. I love that. What would your ask be for listeners today? What can they do to support you and your work and your advocacy work and your community? What can people do to show up for you right now?
1: Um, I would say really just learn about sickle cell. Cause there's still so many people, black people in particular who don't know every year doing either world sickle cell day or, in September, during Sickle Cell Awareness Month, I post like, "Do you know your genotype?" The same people, or even new followers, still are like, "What is a genotype?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we need to talk about hemoglobin gen- genotypes more." Tell us right now. <laughs> Ooh, um, so it's basically if it's the way you know if you have sickle cells or a sickle cell trait. So. The main ones are AA, which is like you don't have it. And then there's AS uh, or AC, which means you have the trait. And then there's the different mutations. So there's the most common one is SS. Um, and then there's hemoglobin SC. And there's beta thalassemia.
0: Well. <laughs> that, was, that was great. That was beautiful. <laughs> so it's basically your genotype is, it's based on your, your blood work, but it's yeah. the genetic code in your, your blood that tells people whether or not you have sickle cell or sickle cell traits. Right. And mm. you
1: get it from your parents.
0: So learn about sickle cell. Where would you tell people to go to learn about sickle cell? Do you have a few um, resources that you would recommend?
1: Um, I would say sickle cell 101 is really good. Yes, they put out a lot of um, general and specific information on what sickle cell is, life of sickle cell, and just also like advocacy, general stuff. Like, I know they've been to like congressional hearings and things like that. They have a podcast now, too. So that's. They do.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: you're in the podcast, obviously you're listening yeah. to this. So. Yes,
0: obviously you're listening to this. <laughs> so. Go check out Sickle Cell 101. So, what's next for you in your wellness journey and in
1: your advocacy work? What's next for Buki? Um, In my wellness journey, I guess just trying to manage this stress, and um, I'm just taking it one day at a time. That's all I've been telling people for like the past month, honestly, because. I don't want to overwhelm myself like this. There's a lot going on right now. And thinking more than a day or a week at a time is personally just too much for me right now. <laughs> um, and for my advocacy work, I my next film, so I'm trying to get funding. It's going to be called Chronically Crushing It. And I would want to interview celebrities, entrepreneurs, famous people, millionaires, people who've made it. Um, with chronic illness and ask them, like, what's the secret sauce? Because (laughs) I need to know. I need to know. Like, um, Nick Cannon, Ava DuVernay, Selena Gomez, I know all have lupus. Um, The president of Howard University, who's also a surgeon, has sickle cell. And he still operates to this day, even as a president. Of Hu, I'm like, sir, you need to tell us what's good. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) what is that secret sauce? Yeah, how did you get through med school with Cell? Yeah,
0: I can't even imagine. It's funny. I watch Grey's Anatomy, and I often sit there thinking, these people like
1: don't sleep. How could you do that if you have like I can't, I can't function. Yeah, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. Like doctors are really one of the healthiest people, or the healthiest groups of people. And so they, I think that's what the disconnect is a lot of time in the care is that like, they've never been sick mm. or seriously sick. And so they have the knowledge, but they don't have the Like the firsthand experience. experience.
0: Yeah. It's right. so, that's a really good point because you have to be able-bodied to get yourself through med school. I mean, also with a lot of these chronic illnesses, I think as we age, our triggers become more severe, right? Like as we're naturally mm. aging, sometimes- our bodies tend to react more severely to triggers and stuff. But, um, I, cause I also think like in my twenties I was fine, you yeah. know, like in my twenties I could have pushed through stuff, but in my thirties I can't, you know, so yeah. maybe that's part of it too. If you do it on the younger side. Possibly. Oh man. Yeah. So next for advocacy is some more film work um, and working on that stress day to day. Now, bookie, can you tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find your work and remind them of your brother's website as well?
1: Yes. So the website for the sickle cell community and caretakers is six s i k c e l l dot com, And you can find me at queen photos, K W E E N photos on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook, backslash Queen Photos, and on YouTube. (laughs) There's not a lot of YouTube content, but... (laughs)
0: But if there's something.
1: Yeah. Uh, September, there might be more YouTube content, hopefully. Mm. And at queenphotos.com, you can um, purchase prints now. I've finally set up my print shop.
0: That's awesome. And there are some beautiful images in there from the marches and the Black Disabled Lives Matter March, too. Yes. Mm, Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's such an honor to you know, talk to you to get to know you better. Cause we've been, you know, trying to connect for so long and, um, really to, for you to have taken the time today. I mean, like I know the last few months in particular have been extra exhausting for the black community. And so not that like every day isn't already exhausting. Um, so I, I really want to express my gratitude and appreciation for you taking the, the time and giving us your, your presence today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And thank you for the work that you've been doing. I love how you were amplifying melanated voices. I'm really
0: trying. I'm trying. Really it's very core to the work. So yeah, um, we yeah, well, this is the thing, isn't it? That like, if we're going to be allies, we have to learn how to be intersectional and fully intersectional allies. Yeah. 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 And look, There's I'm not that. perfect. We're all learning as we go, but <laughs> we're uh, I'm always trying to make things better. So um, yeah. thank you for helping me do that.
1: Of course, yeah. I think as I got more into like the advocacy world, I noticed the space seemed really white, it's very white.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag advocacy so white. I mean, it is like that was one of the things when I first got into this space, too, that I was really shocked by that like there wasn't a lot of representation and it made me feel uncomfortable. Um, yeah. and it, it's surprising how comfortable and like easy. Some white people are about it because they just like don't think to look outside themselves or their communities, Um, and I think we need to challenge that because that's not really what chronic illness or disability or advocacy really looks like, is it? You know, in fact, like we learned advocacy from Black women, so you know, (laughs) yeah, like I I I I know.
1: So obsessed with you look okay to me because she was Mm -hmm. like the first Black person actually talking about like publicly openly talking about public illness
0: and has a really strong following and, and people who are yeah. really, you know, plugged into what she's doing. And I mean, she's amazing. She's an incredible person. Yeah. So Just content, honestly, yeah. I, I'm, of if not content yeah. Or not. I'm honored to, to work with her and, and like call her a friend. She's and to like be sharing space at the table with someone like that. I mean, Jamisha is yeah. really incredible. Yeah. She is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for reminding us how white this space is. Cause like guys, if you're tuning in, like we're trying to change that narrative and, uh, it's not about trying, it's about doing right. But like reminding everyone that the, the voices out here in the advocacy space, the patients, the leaders, they're not all white. In fact, most of them aren't. So if we really listen and we really, really dig, um, you know, hopefully you won't have to dig so much in the future. Like it's, right. we want it to all, it's a smorgasbord, but, um, you know, uh, it really is a great reminder to this community that we need to be looking, you need to look outside your own experience always. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bookie, thank you so much. Thank you. That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.